Welcome, welcome. If you're just joining us, we're actually in a, an exciting time um, in our life as a church at Sedaris here. Each and every year, we do something that we call a, um, a Better Conversations series. Well, actually, first of all, I just want to thank everybody who's been praying for me over the past couple of weeks. As you notice, I'm wearing a sling. I can see a lot of curious looks on people's faces. Let me just explain this. I got in a mountain bike accident 15 days ago, I guess now. And uh, it's been rough. Spent some time in the hospital, but I'm on the mend. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Don't worry about me. We'll be fine. I have a stool up here. If I start to, to get a little bit lightheaded, we'll just sit down and we'll just do it like that, okay? So, uh, yeah, don't feel worried for me. Uh, Pastor Dave, who's up there, he has uh, really just taken a bunch of stuff off my plate this week, so I could just focus on this um, and be here with you guys and talk about this, because this subject is actually one that's um, extra close to my heart. Uh, like I said, we're in a uh, series that we do every year here at Sedaris, and we, we call it our, our Bigger and Our Better Conversations series. Um, and so usually at Sedaris, what we do is we open up the Bible and, and we, we ask, what is this Bible, what is this saying? What did it mean for the people back then, and what does it mean for us today? You know, that's usually what we do, so we'll walk through portions of Scripture and do that together as a community. But once a year, we take three or four weeks, and we do something called a Bigger, Better Conversation series, which is we tackle a topic that is limiting conversation in our city. So in the past, we've tackled things such as um, uh, how to be neighbors, how to be great neighbors. We've tackled um, American individualism. Last year, that was a heady one. But what we found is that individualism is actually something that's really fighting against conversation in our city. And it's on one that leads to great conversations as well. So we unpack that together. Um, and this year, we have uh, decided to talk about uh, the dynamic between faith and science. Faith and science, because honestly, uh, faith and science um, are seen as uh, these two big topics that when you put them together, they separate like oil and water. That there's no way for them to live with one another. In fact, uh, when you look at, at uh, polls that have been conducted in the United States, um, usually it's, it's always 60% and higher uh, of American adults, 60% uh, is the lowest one that I found, and higher believe that there is conflict between faith and science, okay? And so this is actually what shuts down conversation in our city between disciples of Jesus and people who are even curious about Christianity or people who wouldn't call themselves Christians, okay? Um, so we're, we're unpacking this uh, over the course of four weeks, where, and uh, we're saying that, you know what? Faith and science, spoiler alert, isn't like um, you and your mother-in-law, although Patrick, it looked like you got, got a, a great uh, along with your mother-in-law this morning. Sorry. Small church, you get called out sometimes. Patrick gets along great with his mother-in-law. I don't. Anyways, I'm not going to project that on you, Patrick. Um, <laughs> um, but, <clears throat> and so we've suggested that committed Christian faith actually forces an attitude of deep reverence science. Okay, so for the past two weeks, Dave has let out with something that he has really loved about uh, in terms of scientific advancement and uh, the kind of silly examples of just radio, you know. I'm going to bring a real example to you now, okay? He's not up there, so, or he's not down here, so I'm going to bring you a real example. You know, two weeks ago, I crashed on my mountain bike. Okay, I broke my collarbone, my top eight ribs. One of my ribs, at least, I'm not sure, punctured my lung collapsed my lung. And without the advancement of modern medicine, I could not have been transported to a hospital. 
I could not have been cut open and had a breathing tube stuck in me. I could not have been hooked up to a small little vacuum, I guess. I don't know, this little magic machine. <laughs> little vacuum for two days that relieved pressure inside my chest cavity, allowing my lung to inflate fully. Without the advancements in science, and in particular in, in medicine, I'd be going down the stages of pneumonia irreversibly. It's likely that I wouldn't recover <laughs> with a collapsed lung. That's something that would just put you out before advancements in science, okay? And in medicine, okay? So, I'll tell you this. Don't break your collarbone, because you use it for everything. Um, but also, I have a deep, deep reverence for science. And, and, and more than that, I'm just a curious person generally, okay? And so when it comes to discovering the physical world, um, I actually love science. And in this Faith in Science series, what we've found over the past two weeks, what Dave has spoken to, is that the general notion that faith and science, they can't live in the, same, uh, in the same house or exist in the same room or in the same conversation with one another, comes from something called scientism. Scientism, okay? Um, scientism. And, and instead of giving you a hard and fast definition of the term scientism, um, it's actually something that Dave has done really masterfully over the past few weeks, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my story because uh, my story has bumped into scientism um, a significant amount. Um, and, and I think that when you hear my story, you'll be able to relate and understand, okay, these are the points in my story and the conversations that I've had that, that I've also bumped into this thing called scientism, okay? Okay, so I was 19 years old. I was 19 years old, and I was in the sophomore year of my undergraduate studies at CU Boulder when I made a decision. That decision was to study physics for the remainder of my undergraduate career, okay? It's to study physics, okay? And I, so I, I, I did that, I had completed a physics degree um, with a particular emphasis in astrophysics, planetary science, okay? This was a degree that took me deep into theoretical physics, okay? Not just classical mechanics like, like Newton, but quantum mechanics, um, advanced electricity and dynamics, um, uh, advanced astrophysics and quantum, electro, uh, quantum electrodynamics, QED. Does anybody even know what that means? Quantum electrodynamics? Gregor, maybe? Particle physics. Just particle physics. Just, that's, that's what us scientists do. We, we get really long words. Now you're wowed. Now you're like, oh man, this guy's smart. No. <laughs> particle physics, okay? And, and for these few years, I was a scientist. I was committed to the empirical pursuit of knowledge making observations and gathering tangible data to, to test hypotheses um, in my own labs. Um, I had free reign of a 22-inch uh, telescope, uh, which was awesome. That kind of, the whole building moved, you know, and it took pictures of space, and I got to monitor distant galaxies and figure out how much supermassive black holes were consuming matter around their, their I mean, it's really fun stuff, okay? And I, was, I loved it. And, and so I was a scientist. And on the other hand, I was a person of deep faith in Jesus Christ. And I found myself having the same conversation over and over again with different groups of people, okay? With my friends who were agnostic or atheist, who would come up that I was a Christian, and they would look confused at me and ask a version of the question, but what about science? But what about science? And these questions uh, range from the generally confused, um, but what about science? 
How can you believe in God and practice science to the suspicious? Doesn't faith make you overlook certain aspects of scientific discovery? To outright ridicule, people of faith are too stupid to be scientists, what are you up to? And, and I still have these conversations with people, and what I found is in the, in the city of Seattle, when people discover that I'm a pastor and that I also have an astrophysics degree, they respond in confusion, bafflement, <laughs> bewilderment. I mean, I, I love talking about this with Uber car drivers. It's just the best. It's just the best, okay? Confusion. But what's also interesting are the conversations that I had with Christians. When they discovered that I was a person of faith involved in the scientists, sometimes they were suspicious of my endeavors as well. They asked me questions like, but what about the Bible? What about the Bible? How can you believe in both science and the Bible? There is a subset of Christians that clearly thought that I wouldn't remain a Christian much longer if I continued going down my scientific pursuits. Okay, so I had people cornering me from both sides, asking me God or science. And as, but as a scientist and as a believer, I had always held them in harmony. When I was doing my undergrad, I cried out to God under the weight of my endless homework sets. Just like, God, help me. In physics, it's just every week there's a huge homework assignment just coming at you. Engineers know. You know I, was with, I was with them for my calculus and physics. I cried out to God in that. Okay? But, but when I went to church, I didn't check my brain at the door when I went to the uh, planetarium, when I went to the observatory, I didn't check my faith at the door. <clears throat> but there's, there's an assumption present in my friend's questions that faith and science were at war with one another. And have we ever stopped to ask, where does that notion come from? And, and so I'm, I'm just sure that as I've shared my story that, that you uh, have encountered this very debate in your life as well. It's prevalent. It's everywhere in in society, okay? Whether it be from your, your secular co-workers, your friends, your zealously religious relatives, uncle. I thought that was a joke, but okay. Maybe it's too real. <laughs> okay? But it's been created and proliferated by the prophets of scientism. They've created this fictitious but pervasive assumption that faith and science, they're at war with one another. You have to choose one or the other. Which is it? God or science? But it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always this way. Johannes Kepler, anybody heard of this guy? Johannes Kepler, yeah, yeah. Lots of heads nodding. He was uh, the key figures, one of the key figures in the scientific revolution, for those of you who, who don't know. He was an astronomer, great mathematician, okay? He was a contemporary of Galileo. You've definitely heard of him, Copernicus. And he's credited with establishing the laws of planetary motion around the sun, and he advanced the, the field of, of celestial mechanics considerably. He's considered one of the great astronomers, great mathematicians. And in his capstone scientific work, where he shared these laws that we still use today, his laws of motion around the sun, that they go in ellipses, not in circles, he starts with these following words, okay? And I just want, to want you to imagine these words leading out any scientific discovery in nature or science. Um, the, the, these are the scientific journals of our time. <coughs> Excuse me. He says this, he says, I commence a most sacred discourse, a most true hymn to God the founder, and I judge it to be piety, not to sacrifice many bulls to him or to burn incense or innumerable perfumes to him, but first to learn myself, and then afterwards to teach others too how great he is in wisdom, how great in power, and of what sort in goodness. 
what a strange way to lead out a scientific finding. It's followed by a thousand pages of mathematical and scientific discourse. How crazy is that? Now, now, did anyone hear this quote or any like it in their state university? No. These are the quotes that are from the scientific literature that have been dismissed and buried as just ancient superstition by, the, by, by institutions of higher education nowadays. Okay? But if we're not too prideful, we're going to treat Kepler as the intellectual and Renaissance man that he was, okay? He didn't fall into science as a Christian, hoping that these two could be rectified. No, he was, in fact, clear, it was clear through this quote that he was driven to science by an insatiable desire to learn about and to celebrate God through the entire created order. And that's pretty cool. And and a harmony between science and faith existed for Kepler. And as someone who in my undergrad institution years was doing something very similar to him, looking up at the heavens, I found my guy. I, I found someone who was like, oh man, I share this with another scientist, this love of faith and science. And seeing my love of faith as driving my science and my love for science as driving my love for God. Wow. Okay? And, and so, how do we get there, though? That's the question. That's the question. That's the question I hope to, to help all of us get there today, okay? Um, and one of the ways that, uh, that we call out this myth of scientism that says that we can't get there is actually not necessarily by looking at God or at the institutions of religion, but by looking at the institution of science. The institution of science. Science is an institution. It's not just uh, some people doing experiments in white lab coats and fancy glassware. Science is actually most clearly and fundamentally understood as an institution. It's organized, has authority structures, rules, positions, powers, enforcers, just like all institutions have. But this is what is most fundamental to the institution of science. It's an, insti- it's an institution that was established by devoted Christians. By devoted Christians. Does anybody know who is responsible for the scientific revolution? A bunch of Christians. A bunch of them. How about the person who wrote the scientific method? Francis Bacon, named after the greatest meat ever. He was a devoted scientist and a devoted Anglican. Huh. So if we look at the institution of science, which was created by men and women who worshipped the creator God, there's actually something within it that helps us push back against the fundamental uh, tenets of scientism. Okay? Because the the, the prophets of scientism, be it your, your Dawkins, Hawkins, your Neil deGrasse Tyson, even though he's super winsome, I love listening to him too. He's, he's a scientism guy. <clears throat> They've really used the institutional word of science that we all understand and know and say that it's set up against all institutions of religion. And it just isn't true. Okay? So uh, take, for example, this quote from Richard Dawkins. He says, science, using the term institutionally, Science is about trying to explain existence, and religion is about trying to explain existence. It's just that religion gets the wrong answer. You see that? The institutions of religion and science are at war with each other. I'm a a broken record at this point, okay? It's a a very naive view 
It's based on a complete historical misrepresentation of the way science and religion have always worked together. Okay, so, so let's talk about science as an institution, okay? And first we have to define terms because the term science is very slippery. So let's throw the word science up there. There it is, science. It's a very slippery term. And this is why, okay? Next slide. Anybody have an answer to this? This is a conundrum. You think if there's any word that followed the rule, it would be science, okay? I before E except for C, come on. It's ridiculous. I've, I've been scratching my head about this for, for a decade now. I, I can't solve it, okay? No, but in all seriousness, uh, science is a very slippery word. And it's most slippery when it's used in its full institutional sense of the word, okay? Um, what sense is that? Um, well, here's a, a very lighthearted example, okay? When I was in the ICU 10 days ago, um, I got, just got moved from the emergency department up to the ICU. It was the first time that I had been able to see all the instruments around me. I wasn't strapped down with a, a neck collar. The nurse, she took my temperature, which is like a really cool thing that just go right across the forehead now. She took my temperature and, and, and looked at it and she wrote it down and, and I could see it and it said 37. And I was like, I don't know what that means, because up to this point in my life, I'd always had my temperature read to me in Fahrenheit, as I'm sure you have as well. And so I asked her, I said, 37, um, it, what does that mean? Is that in the acceptable range? And she said, oh, yes, it indeed is. And I said, why are you measuring it in Celsius? And, and she looked back at me, and, and she said, oh, science has always measured these things in, in Celsius, and we're just getting back to it. How interesting. Science. Well, it's just because science said so, you know? Now, this happens all, all the time. I'm not saying this nurse did anything wrong. This is just a lighthearted example. But how often have you had science invoked in a conversation as an authority, uh, like as, as a huge authority that is a, a, a conversation and a discussion and an argument-ending blow? I've encountered it often. Often. Okay? And this is really confusing because the institution of science is absolutely enormous. It includes multiple departments of governments, not just the United States, but all of them, ranging from space exploration to weather prediction, military defense. It includes academia, higher education. It includes their scientific departments of mathematics, physics, engineering. Last night at, at the wedding reception that I was at, I sat down next to a guy named uh, uh, um, TJ. TJ said, I said, hey, TJ, uh, what do you do? He said, I'm a scientist at the University of Washington. He's part of the Institution of Science. It, it includes independent research centers, such as pharmaceuticals, research and development wings of thousands of companies, including Boeing, Microsoft, Amazon. Uh, a, a new member at our cohort this week is working at Amazon. He's a scientist working in the robotics department. Soon there will be a robot delivering something to your door. He says right now they struggle with shadows, though. So they've got to figure out how to navigate shadows. But they're working on it. <laughs> These are just a few examples. I think you can still get sea monkeys at Target for your, for your kids to do science experiments at home. The institution of science is very, very large. And the question is, what is this institution all about? What's it all about? Well, it's all about understanding and explaining the physical world. Understanding, explaining the physical world. And how's that done? Through the scientific method. And does anybody remember what that is? Probably not, but we have it on a slide here. Look at that. So this is Francis Bacon's work, um, 
He actually published something that was hundreds of pages long, arguing for each one of these steps that kind of get kind of, uh, you just kind of get blasted with it in seventh grade, right? Seventh grade lab, you're just like, boom. It's, it actually represents like a decade of his life. So we should be really thankful for it. But this is the scientific uh, method, observation. Make questions from your observation. Formulate an answer to your question, hypothesis. Test your hypothesis. I, I'm sure some of you are going through PTSD of your lab in, in high school. I'm sorry to do that to you on a Sunday morning. Um, analyze the experimental data. Make a conclusion regarding the hypothesis. And then the most importantly, share results for corroboration or falsification. This is the scientific method. And what's the goal? To gain clarity on facts, hypotheses, theories, and laws. Now, it, it seems really obvious to us. Oh, of course, this is just how we do it, because we learned it when we were in grade school. Um, but why did Bacon have to write this? Why is this the crucial part of the scientific revolution in the late 1600s? Well, he penned it because certain institutions and authorities, which eventually kind of came to a head in the Catholic Church, had leaned on terrible metaphysical and philosophical descriptions of the physical world from Aristotle. Aristotle. Um, pop quiz, was Aristotle a Christian? Anybody? He was not. He was actually alive 350 years before Jesus. Okay? Um, he lived 350 years before Christ, and he said things like this. The sun is the most pure thing that has ever existed in all of creation. Galileo looks up at it, finds sunspots. Uh-oh. Aristotle is in question. <clears throat> and, and when you honestly research the scientific revolution, what you really find are a bunch of Christian scientists fighting against strange pagan metaphysics and philosophy. Gallo actually first pissed off the secular um, medieval academies, who actually then leaned on the Catholic Church to enforce it, to, to, to make them stop. This is the central cause of the scientific revolution, and this is the great scandal, honestly, that's been swept under the rug by scientism nowadays. Okay. So, so the scientific method is meant to guard against metaphysical and philosophical interpretations of the physical world, which ironically means this. It's meant to guard against the millennia-old pagan philosophers and the modern-day prophets of scientism. Dawkins, Hawkins, Tyson. I think for a, a moment, Bill Nye even kind of presented himself in that same stream. I don't even know why. He's, just, he's kind of like an educator well, he was an engineer that went educator and children's entertainer, and then we just like, whatever Bill Nye says. It's like, what the heck? It was very strange to me, you know? I think it was kind of indicative of our intellectual bankruptcy as a society. I was like, this, is, this guy just told us that, that baking soda and Coca-Cola made a rocket. I mean, anyways, I don't want to discredit him too much. I mean, <laughs> it's just very strange. But this is what scientism does. It leads to some very silly things. Now, Pretend, we've used this analogy uh, a couple weeks now, um, I want to share it again because it, it's a really great way to wrap our heads around what science is all about. Pretend I brought with me up here a chocolate cake. A chocolate cake, okay? I could give that chocolate cake to a group of scientists. They could do a great job in telling me what that cake was made of, how it was made, and when it was made. They could do an incredible job. and They might even be able to reproduce that cake. That's pretty cool, okay? But you, do you know what they could not tell me? They could not tell me who made the cake. They could not tell me for what purpose the cake was made. That's just something that scientific inquiry, inquiry cannot help us with. 
Okay? <clears throat> and the historic institution of science has admitted that it cannot answer the who behind, the behind all of created order, cannot answer the why behind the created order. These are not parts of the physical created order that we observe. It can't answer the questions of who or why because, are, because those are hidden, and it remains focused on the why, the how, and the when. But scientism claims to know those answers of who and why. In its pride, it'll confidently look at you and says, nobody created all this, and it has no purpose, and you have no purpose. Part of, part of Jeff's testimony when, when he shared, uh, when he was baptized, he's a guy who's leading worship with the, the black guitar today. Part of the, the thing he says, atheism truly leads to nihilism. When we truly say that there is no God behind all this, all of a sudden it becomes very clear there is no purpose behind all of this. <clears throat> but categorically, they've st scientists have stepped outside the realm and into the metaphysical and, phys and, and physiological realms, back into what Aristotle was focused on. And, and, and that's fine. Let, let's have a metaphys metaphysical and philosophical debate. I think that's fine, and, and that, that's all great and good, and that's been done, and and, and I think Christianity has a lot to say with regards to that. But here's the kicker. The authority they're leaning on is the institution of science. Even though the scientific method is clearly designed to keep scientists away from such who and why statements. Okay? Okay. <clears throat> so, I guess all this is to say is that really what I want you to understand about my argument of pushing back against scientism that says there's no... There's no um, mixing faith in science, is I'm not up here as a frustrated pastor. I'm not up here as a frustrated pastor saying, these people are speaking against God and I need to defend God. And, and as someone uh, who is working in the institutions of religion, I need to make a defense. Not at all. I'm frustrated as a scientist because they've co-opted the beautiful institution of science to start making metaphysical and philosophical statements that are uncorroborative and unfalsifiable. It's really frustrating, okay? But they do it. They do it anyways, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about how they do it so that you can understand and see it when it's happening in conversation so that you can ask great questions and, and stick in conversations about it. And they primarily do it through redefining terms, scientific terms of laws, theories, hypothesis, in fact, so those four, okay? So we're just going to go through those really quick, okay? Um, let's throw scientific law up there. Scientific laws. Scientific laws predict the results of certain initial conditions, okay? They predict how far a baseball will fly when it's hit by a certain force at a certain angle. Scientific law will tell you exactly where that ball is going to end up, okay? Kepler, in, in the work that he wrote about his elliptical motions that I quoted uh, his, his opening statement of, he provided three laws of planetary motion that we still use today. We still use these laws today to predict where the planets are gonna end up, where, where to point our telescopes in the sky to figure out where they are, okay? All right, now th that brings us to the next one, scientific theories. Scientific theories try to provide the most logical explanation about why things happen as the way they do. They try to provide the most logical explanation about why things happen. Um, now back to Kepler. Along with his three laws of planetary motion, he published a theory about why the planets were orbiting like that. Do you know what he suggested? He suggested this cosmic musical harmony, complete with notes and everything. 
Now, his theory actually turned out to be wrong, which is fascinating. We still use the laws today. Okay, he was writing a couple decades before Newton discovered gravity and theorized gravity, okay? And then, and, and so then Newton had some more laws about how gravity worked, and, and then Einstein shows up on the scene, and Einstein says, wait, there's actually more we need to know about gravity when he publishes general theory of, of relativity. Then we actually start to really understand what gravity is, and then Newton's laws get redefined further, okay? So an easy way to remember the difference between theories and laws is a law predicts what happens while a theory proposes why. A law predicts what happens while a, a theory proposes why. Laws are generally true while theories are proposed explanations as to why they are true. And theories need to be investigated more, okay? All right, let's move on to scientific facts. Scientific facts, these are observations that have been repeatedly confirmed. Repeatedly confirmed. For example, saying there are five trees in my yard is a fact because it is a simple, observable reality. And proponents of scientism often conflate this category with theory. They'll say things like macroevolution is a fact. Well, that's actually not true because facts are observed. We've never actually observed macroevolution happening. We've only theorized it. Okay? So that, that's a scientific fact. Now, hypotheses, these are the easiest ones because this is what we did in seventh, eighth, ninth, and 10th grade. They function as tentative statements about the natural world, leading to deductions that can be tested. So pulling all of these together looks like this. Laws are generally true, this is what scientists say, in the institution of science, but they can be overturned. Theories are debated explanations of reality, and hypotheses are ideas in a need of additional scrutiny. Now, this is what the scientists, the proponents of scientism, have actually shifted these definitions to. Laws are unshakable. Theories are facts that are soon to be laws. And hypotheses are soon to be theories. Now, this is a generalization, of course. And, and part of actually what I'm, I'm really good at is taking complex things and, and, and making them more simple. I'm a, good scientist in, in that regards. And I, I, I wouldn't say this is reductionistic, however. Scientism really does hold that these theories are ground, uh, are unignorable facts that are soon to be worked into laws. But in reality, laws and theories don't work together like that. There's not a graduation scheme from hypothesis to theories to laws. But if you actually go out in the public, most of the public thinks that is exactly how it works. This is because scientism has been very successful in putting out its worldview and, and how it works. All right, so take a minute to, to write that down. It, it's, this is the, the subtle changing of terms that really um, is, is how um, Christians get lost in conversations, and, and it's one of the reasons why uh, we're really unable to stay in conversations regarding science and faith. It's because these terms are sloppily uh, used by our greater a culture that's influenced by scientism, okay? Cool. So now, I've spent most of my time refuting scientism, okay? And I don't want to do that anymore, okay? I want to show you a better alternative, okay? This is what I found when I was studying my undergrad in astrophysics. If the scientific revolution was led by a bunch of devoted Christian scientists, which it was, and if they created this institution, which was to uh, go forward with a certain structure, preserved structure, which they did, thank you Francis Bacon and others, then we would expect that Christians would be excellent scientists. 
which they are. Spoiler. Which they are. Now, there's this book called On Thinking Institutionally, a little book written in 2007 by a guy named Hugh Hecklow. Hugh Hecklow, he actually gained his chops uh, teaching at Harvard. He taught government at Harvard. Now he, he, he teaches on public policy at George Mason University. Hugh Hecklow wrote a book called On Thinking Institutionally, which mostly speaks to just broader institutions, mostly uh, the United States and large uh, secular institutions uh, in society, um, and namely why we don't trust them. <laughs> we, really, we really identify institutions, we're very suspicious, with the exception of this institution of science, which is fascinating to me. You know? But he does have a couple pages that he writes about this institution of, scientific, of, of, of science, okay? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> and in it, he teases out what is so fundamental to this institution, and it's really cool. He calls it thinking like a scientist. Thinking like a scientist is the backbone of the institution of science, okay? And, and, uh, and he says this. He says, by invoking the term thinking like a scientist, I do not mean that there is some unique scientific mind or psychological makeup possessed by people called scientists. It's true that some champions of, of science like to hold on high the model scientist who exhibits a psychological state of objectivity, rigorously discarding preconceptions and personal preferences as he or she proceeds down the path of neutral scientific inquiry. But that kind of psychologist is not how scientists, or science works. It's closer to the mark to say that thinking like a scientist means accepting a method of inquiry, the scientific method. However, that too is said quite glibly. What the method really means is that science is a social institution because everything must be published for review. As a practical matter, the social group composed over generations of those agreeing with the purpose of scientific enterprise and submitting to its rules is that what constitutes the institution of science. Everybody who thinks like a scientist is contributing towards the institution of science. So what he's saying here is the scientific method is a set of rules, it's the procedure with which the institution of science um, really operates within, much like the procedure within the United States operates within the set of rules of the Constitution. Scientific method works in that way. And the community of people who are committed to operating within the institution of science are meant to abide by that method, which calls them to act and behave in certain ways in order to pursue the advancement of scientists. Thinking like a scientist means that you act and behave in a certain way. That's what the institution of science says. And so the question becomes, what do scientists do with their observations? of the physical world. How do they present their conclusions? The method states that findings must be shared. The method stipulates that all statements for the physical world must be capable of repeatable tests so they can be corroborated or falsified. What does this mean? What does it mean? It means that the possibility for falsification is so central to thinking like a scientist and it's the one that demands the most of a scientist ethically. Why? Everybody's gonna know this to be true about their own life. Because we all wish to confirm what we believe is true. All of us wish to confirm what we believe is true. Scientists in particular want to confirm what they believe is true. Every hypothesis 
that is a novel thing that a scientist has created, if he confirms or she confirms that it is true, how amazing would that be? See, humans at their base, we, we can't help it. We're always tempted to glorify our intellect and our reason to get more uh, grants to do science. If, if we're shown as extra intelligent, we're going to get more money to continue doing more science. And so within science, there's actually ways that, that people can pursue science with, with motives of self-greatness or, or uh, continued employment, okay? <clears throat> Which presents us with quite the pickle, okay? It, it really does. And, and when you go in, into the literature, everybody is always saying that, a scientist needs to be confirmed or needs to be uh, almost obsessed with this notion of trying to be proven wrong, which is true. And this means something interesting. A moral obligation lies at the heart of science as a social institution. The scientific method depends on something more than the mere possibility of falsification. It requires human beings, the scientists who make up the community, to be positively committed to seeking contrary evidence to reject any effort to, to protect their scientific statements from falsification, and to reject this moral obligation to seek truth through falsification is to abandon science itself, actually. If, if we get away from that, we are in a different game. And, and, and so, like I said, we're always calling for scientists to be unbiased, but it's so difficult. It cuts against our nature. And so God actually becomes the most helpful thing in the scientific pursuit. Why? Because when the pursuit of science is framed as uncovering the glory of the creator instead of corroborating the intelligence of those involved in the discovery, then it has a much more likely of a chance to be unbiased, to move forward as it was truly meant to move forward, as glorifying God instead of glorifying the human race, human scientists, what we can find out and what we can achieve through it. So, so for the advancement of science to continue, we deeply need scientists who aren't concerned with making a name for themselves or even making a paycheck, but highly value the created order. This is what produces incredible science. A person who isn't trying to glorify the human race, but truly uncover uh, the, the, the beauty that God has buried into his artistic masterpiece of creation, has no other self-serving, self-glorifying motives. The Christian scientist, uniquely, is far more likely to be stripped of this self-interest and self-glory. That's why there's so many Christian scientists at the top of disciplines today. That's why they'll continue to be there. It's why Christians will continue to win Nobel Peace Prizes. <clears throat> See, faith and science are not merely compatible. Science is dependent upon God to continue forward in a healthy way. This is a quote from Francis Collins. Francis Collins was a geneticist, who's in charge of the Human Genome Project. Um, he actually became a, a Christian through his scientific studies. He has a great book called The Language of God, which I encourage you to read. But what, what I want to point out to you is this, this quote within it. He says, faith and science coexist happily within the mind of an intellectually inquisitive person living in the 21st century. Science is not threatened by God, it is enhanced. You see, I'm not up here trying to argue that faith and science are compatible. I'm saying that they are in desperate need of one another. They're in desperate need of one another. God is most certainly not threatened by science. He made it all possible.
Why do they need each other? Because science is exploration, and exploration is worship. That's a big idea that I hit at the very end of the sermon here. Science is exploration, and exploration is worship. I shared with you how Kepler opened his great scientific and mathematical work. This is how he closed it. He says, I'm crying out with the royal psalmist. Great is our Lord. Great is his virtue and his wisdom. Praise him, ye heavens. Praise him, ye sun, moon, and planets. Use every sense for perceiving, every tongue for declaring your creator. To him be praise, honor, and glory. World without end. See, Kepler saw his work of understanding the solar system as worship of God. Whenever humans find something new, something great, we want to glorify something. We want to either say, how great am I, or how great is God? Man truly is the measure of all things, is what we've told ourselves. What if God is the measure of all things? The heavens display his glory, okay? In Genesis chapter 2, we actually find that Adam is the first world scientist. God blesses Adam, whose job is then to turn around and bless God's creation. How? First of all, by naming the animals. It's very interesting. Why the heck is that in the Bible? Anybody know? Isn't that strange? Who cares what Adam named him? We, have, we speak different languages than Adam, I'm sure. We kind of name them ourselves now. But when scientists discover new genuses, new species, name them, and situate them into, into taxonomies... What this says is they're actually fulfilling humanity's most basic, some would say even highest, vocation. But there's more to it than just that. When human beings conceive of the created order as a masterpiece of God, when they delight in the created order by exploring it, discovering the laws behind how it works, naming things like gravity, DNA, new worlds, new galaxies, they're performing the most important act a human can. They're worshiping. So the next time you encounter the God or science question, speak up and say, God and science is so crucial in order to do both well. Let's pray. Father, um, I just thank you for my friends who are here, and, and right now I just want to pray for any of my friends who are continuing to, to process through and consider who you are, who are coming from the, the side of the spectrum that, that they're not quite sure if this whole Jesus thing is true or this whole God thing is true, Lord. And I thank you that you have begun to do a work in their lives to bring them here, to, to, to hear uh, a talk about scientism and the, the pervasive view of our day. Right now, I would just ask uh, for them that, that you would uh, help them find uh, more people to continue the conversation. I hope for all, I hope for all of us that, that, we would, uh, that you would give us courage to stay in the conversation uh, when it comes to, to you and when it comes to science um, because uh, it, it's so important in order to, to hold both of those together. So many people are just scared that if they become a Christian, they forfeit their intellectualism. But that isn't true for you are the great mind. So I I just, we thank you and we love you and we we just pray that uh, you would uh, uh, take uh, these things that uh, we have have learned today about how our culture works and that you would use us to bless the world through them. Amen.